Hello, hello, everyone. This is your host, Akil Jabbar, and welcome back to another episode of SaaS District by Horizon Capital, where we partner with B2B SaaS companies and help them scale with both capital and our growth marketing playbook. This episode is also sponsored by our partners at Build, a startup development studio that helps early stage startups build and launch scalable revenue generating software businesses. Product development is often a challenge for non-technical founders who don't have a tech person internally. That's where Build comes in. They help founders build and launch their MVPs, test the market, and find product market fit. For 15K and roughly a month's work, Build will get your validated product up and out. We've all been burnt by the companies that promised this for years. But Build is focused on finding product market fit and will do that by keeping you away from the feature creep and escalating costs that do most initial products. They keep costs low with the block structure, but more importantly, they have already built great products on scope and on time for founders. Companies they've worked with have generated hundreds of thousands of dollars in revenue, gotten into Y Combinator, or raised money at eight-figure valuations. If you have an idea and want to see it come to life as a product, head over to build.com. That's B-Y-L-D-D.com today. In today's episode, we'll be talking about defining your pricing and packaging for new B2B SaaS products. Today, we have our guest, Dan Belkowski joining us. Dan is the founder and chief product officer at Product Tranquility, a consulting firm that accelerates product growth and increases customer loyalty. They bring world-class product management and strategy practices to B2B SaaS and marketplace companies in the mid and small market. Dan has managed multiple products throughout the product lifecycle from new concept incubation, product launch, product maintenance, platform transitions, and end life and end of life over the last 15 years. Now, just a quick side note before we get started on today's podcast, um, I just had a quick shot of one of those Magic Mind drinks this morning. So I've been trying this out for the last week or so. So we'll see how this affects our show. Hopefully it gets me into flow state, which is kind of the, the point of one of these green drinks. They, um, they were also kind enough to offer a 40% off on a subscription to our listeners for the next 10 days. So you can enter the coupon code SAS 20 or you can also check it out. We're going to add into our show notes. Just go to magicmind.co slash SAS. And uh, yeah, try it out. See how it works for you. So uh, that being said, Dan, welcome to the show. Super excited to have you on SAS District Show today. Thank you for having me, Akil. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Uh, so we're talking about pricing today. We're talking about value. We're talking about packaging your SaaS. So I want to talk about product value first because you know, people always get confused maybe between the difference between a price and value. But specifically in your mind, how do you perceive value? What is How, how do you think about that? And is there you know, different ways to think about, you know, how you position your SaaS among all the competition in the place, right? Because people will say, okay, well, this is what, I'm just going to look at my competition. This is what they're pricing at. And I'm just going to half it. And, you know, people buy based on, on the price, but I'd love to hear your opinion. Yeah, it's a very broad question. So I'll see if I can make it uh, bite-sized for your listeners here. So sure. the most important part of pricing is understanding value. And I think it's one of these terms, you know, value like strategy or segmentation tends to get thrown around without a lot of precision in terms of what people actually mean when they say it. So I think it's a great question. The understanding your customer value, there's a great book, almost the Bible of pricing called The Strategy and Tactics of Pricing written by a guy named Tom Nagel. And he outlines what's called the value cascade. And so we could think of the value cascade as a a visual diagram would help, but for your podcast listeners, you know, a series of uh, bars in in decreasing height and really starts with understanding your use value. Uh, economists might refer to this as utility. And so this is the different aspects 
the ways we understand how we create value for customers in terms of the overall benefits that they receive. And so we can think about these type of benefits in three broad categories, we like to call value drivers. So these would be economic or functional benefits. So these are the type of tasks customers are trying to achieve to achieve some economic outcome, like increasing revenue, decreasing costs, decreasing time spent, uh, increasing optionality, decreasing risk. Could also be more intangible type benefits, things like uh, psychological, emotional uh, value. So the increased uh, status, uh, better convenience, improved peace of mind, access to expertise, or social benefits. So this is very important if you're dealing with, for example, if you're in a government entity or a nonprofit, humans are social creatures. We don't do things just for our own use, but if you're, for example, a nonprofit trying to advocate for equal rights or climate change, right? Those are creating value beyond yourself, right? For the broader uh, social group, or this could be things like being part of or separated from a, a community. So really understanding use value is the overall set of benefits that we create for customers. But then the next part of the value cascade is what we call exchange value. So this is the concept that your product doesn't exist in a vacuum. And so while it's really important to understand how you create value for customers, all value is relative. So we really have to understand what is the reference value that customers have in the market. So this would be the, if you didn't exist in the market, what is it that they would be using? And so if you're selling, if I'm selling a lemonade stand, or I make it very simple, if I'm on uh, selling lemonade on my street corner and the guy across the street has a lemonade stand, if he's selling at $5 and I'm trying to sell at $10, but the market price is $5 because there's no rational consumer that's going to come across the street and spend double the price, even though my, you know, in the best world, my, my product might be worth that because the reference value has been set. This was the value of a, of a market economy where undifferentiated value gets priced by the market. And okay. so then it really becomes, what is the reference value plus or minus the differentiated value that we provide? And so this is where, you know, it really becomes important to understand how you are value advantaged or disadvantaged versus the other competitors in the space. And there's another visual tool, which I'm not going to dive too into because I think it might be difficult to understand on a podcast, but there's a useful tool called a, like a price value map. So price value map, if you think about a two axes, one being price, the other being value, helps you really understand given you know, the price that you charge or the relative price that you charge, given other players in your market, how much value do you provide? Mm. Giving you a sense of where are you able to play in that market, right? For a an equal price to value trade-off, right? Because that's really what it comes down to is that, you know, all this pricing is relative to the value you create is relative to the competitors that exist in the space. And then finally is this concept of perceived value. So in as much as we might go through this rational economic analysis, trying to understand the differentiated value that we create better competitors, oftentimes you know, the, context, the context the customer's in and our ability to communicate our, the value of our product influences the value of the product in the customer's mind, right? And that's really what drives customer rulings to pace because customer may be uninformed about relevant alternatives, uninformed about your differentiating benefits, or you know, in the economic terms, you know, for a customer to get more educated about what's available in the market, the different competitors, competitors that are available, you know, they may have what's called a high search cost to finding out more information about your product. And so, you know, it's, they would be willing to trade off. You know, this is where marketing tools like 
testimonials or logo gardens, you know, help short circuit. It's like, oh no, a bunch of other people have already validated that we're, you know, you need, you can short circuit your search because mm-hmm. you know we have only limited time to figure out all the the best alternatives, right? No yeah. human is a perfectly rational, omniscient actor that knows everything about your product and exists in the space. So hopefully that was that was helpful. No, no, that's good. Uh, maybe on deep a little bit, dig a little dive, uh, deep a little, dig a little deeper onto one point, which is talk about perceived value. Um, you know, we're talking about price versus value, and, and more specifically, maybe let's talk about an example um, when we're, we're thinking about differentiating between a price metric and the value metric. When a lot of people at the beginning stages, I see, you know, setting up their SaaS company and their pricing packages, they say, okay, let's, you know, maybe copy the competition. We'll offer the same value in terms of the product of how they kind of position it, and you know, just make the price cheaper. Like, let's say, you know, half the price. And then, you know, we're going to capture the market because we're a lot cheaper when it comes to price. But, you know, I feel sometimes that kind of backfires because then the perceived value sometimes is like, this is too cheap. And maybe it, it kind of uh, just shows that maybe this product is just not as good. Even though, I mean, what I, and I always suggest, you know, you should also be probably the same price, even if maybe not as good or maybe, you know, plus or minus like 10%. But if you go half, maybe it kind of backfires. What's your thought on that? Yeah, there's like four different questions buried in there. So <laughs> yeah, I'll, sure. take the la- I'll take the last one first. Price is often a shortcut or indicator to value, much like I mentioned before with like testimonials or logo gardens, where customers will use them as proxies. And this is especially exacerbated in markets where information about competitive alternatives can be opaque, right? That could be individual price points or... Often, even in B2B SaaS, which is the area I play, you know, you've got competitors with you know, yourself or your competitors have hundreds of features. And you know, maybe you look at a Gartner Magic Quadrant or you know, a, a G2 crowd or something like that to try to you know, narrow down, okay, what are, what are points of uh, differentiation? But in those scenarios where customers are unsure about differentiating benefits, there can be this reliance on price as an indicator of quality. And it can work for you and against you, right? If in the world of Rolex, right? If you have to ask what a price of a Rolex is, you're not in a market for a Rolex. Let's put it yeah, that way, right? For sure. Uh, yeah. But and if you notice those luxury brands never really discuss price in their messaging, because mm-hmm. if you have to talk about price, well, you're not in their market. So it's just so instead they're advocating or emphasizing you know emotional benefits of status and uh, you know wealth and uh, social signaling, et cetera. Exactly. Uh, similarly, on the on the low end, right, uh, where I may not be, un- I may be unsure about the quality of a product, right? There's could there could be a expectation that oh, this product is so low, I guess it's not as good as it might have been, you know. And and just using that that as a short circuit, um, yes. But generally, you know, you t- I guess this is where it goes into you know some of the other points you brought up. Yeah, generally using price as a lever just to purely gain market share does mm-hmm. tend to backfire on people. We we talk about this in terms of a, a pricing strategy has a very specific term. In my world, it's usually it comes in at the end of the pricing process after you've thought through all of the other elements you need to consider, all your packaging decisions. Pricing strategy really is, okay, given the range of feasible outcomes, how are we going to use price as a lever in order to achieve the objective uh, the business objectives of the company, right? And those usually mm-hmm. fall into three different types of penetration pricing and neutral pricing and a uh, a, a skimming uh, pricing strategies. And the penetration pricing strategies are usually heavily adopted by technology companies. Mm-hmm. 
but often, you know, it's playing with dynamite. You know, it's the idea that, oh, we'll, we'll land and then we'll expand and the landing happens and there's no mm-hmm. real plan to ever expand. And then the companies are sort of stuck. You, know, you see this right now, it's played out with, with Uber uh, and, and Lyft in the public markets, right? Where they've now gone public and both of them are struggling to be profitable. But they were both, you know, in this fierce land grab to subsidize rides, to get very big with the idea that, oh, we'll win this market and then we'll be able to have pricing power. And exactly. now they're finding themselves in this perpetual head-to-head battle where they're not really able to leverage that uh, implied uh, pricing power they thought, you know, in the future. I think they'll just have to get together sometime and and power and and you know stop competing and eventually they'll be able to figure it out, right? <laughs> uh, okay, so if I'm a SaaS company, I understand. You know how how should I think about that? So if I'm looking to set up maybe my optimal strategy, so we talked about one way, which is probably not the best way. Um, what, how would you kind of suggest them to to come up with the strategy for you know effectively pricing their SaaS solution if it's not you know just basing it on price and trying to win off of price? Yeah, so there's a lot of different decisions here. So, you know, setting a price point is best thought of as selecting a price from a feasible range based upon your value pool. And your value pool is simply the amount of economic value that you create sort of above and beyond your competitors, right? Or if you're negatively differentiated, it might be less than your competitors, right? And so you're going to have an upper limit defined by the customer's perceived value of your product or a competitor's price for a similar level of performance, whatever the lower of those two is. And then the lower limit defined by, you know, if your next best competitive alternative, assuming you're positively differentiated in the market, or if you're negatively differentiated, then your product variable cost. And so that sort of sets your price range and then, then it's a matter of really considering a set of items or dynamics within your industry, right? Like, what, as I mentioned before, like, what is the value of your product relative to the competition? Where are you in your product and market life cycle? What does the industry economics look like? What are the competitive dynamics? Uh, how aligned are your internal stakeholders? And I think the important thing is you can really win with any strategy, but it's commitment to that strategy and flawless execution that really is is the is the difference. And you know, because we look at examples, you know, before I mentioned your penetration versus neutral versus a skimming strategy, right? Penetration strategy, right? We think about like Amazon versus yeah. uh, skimming strategy. We think of like Apple, and then maybe like a neutral strategy is someone like Microsoft. All wildly successful companies, and so it's mm-hmm. not necessarily that you are going to win or lose based purely on that. But you know, if you think about how Amazon internally acts, given they want to be you know, not necessarily at the absolute lowest cost, but they drive cost out of everything and it's sort of in their DNA. And so their operational focus and operational excellence is tied directly to how they're going to market and, and their pricing strategy. Similarly with Apple, right? Apple's like, you know, going to create the absolute premium product and you know there was a lot of there was a lot of worries i remember you know 5 10 years ago sounding the death of apple as, as samsung and you know lg and all these other uh, providers started to get really high end android phones that they were going to have to cede the the territory to apple and apple's just been dedicated to that strategy and has found ways to you know where apple uh, executes this brilliantly is that you have you know, a very high price for like the brand new iPhone. But then mm-hmm. over time, the, the previous generations, they lower those prices. And so, you know, if those become very successful moats against those uh, upstart competitors, right? And preventing people from, obviously they have a lot of things related to 
ecosystem lock-in, right? I've got my entire, if I, I have a Mac, I have mm-hmm. an iCloud service, right? There's, so yeah. there's a lot of other components that they've leveraged there, but being able to execute very effectively with, you know, either of those strategies is possible of just making sure that everything is aligned and, you know, you know what you're doing when you go into that. And it's not just like, oh, today we're going to do this. So that's not working for a few months. And then next month, we're going to try something else. That's probably not going to work out very well. <laughs> okay. Um, so I guess based on your experience, you know, you've worked with you know, a ton of founders. Um, you know, we mentioned one thing that, you know, they probably get maybe wrong or, you know, SaaS founders think about their teams get wrong about when they set up their pricing. Can you share any other uh, things that you often see that people get wrong and how they set it up? Yeah. When it comes to SaaS pricing, most executives think that what you charge will determine your success. In fact, who and how you charge determines your success. So said another way, you know, I'd spend most of my time on what the price tag goes on and little time on what number goes on the price tag. And that sort of goes against sort of what we just discussed mm. a little bit with, uh, yeah. you know, trying to figure out this, this pricing strategy. I think most people get very enamored around what I would call the price level. Is this $10 a user per month? Is it 20? Is it 1995? Those are fun conversations. I love them. They're important at a certain level, but they come at the very end of the process. And honestly, you know, in a B2B environment, when you've got uh, sales involvement and potential discounting, like those things are the easiest to sort of modify. It really comes yeah. into understanding you know, who you're selling to and how are you going to package your offering in order to align it to the value you're creating. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, okay. So I've set my price. Uh, you know, I've, I've figured out what my ideal price is. You know, people are buying my product. You know, converting. Uh, and then, you know, we actually, you know, we had this conversation with Patrick Campbell from, you know, formerly ProfitWell, I think they got acquired recently, um, where I asked him, you know, how often should we be increasing our prices? Um, and I think he mentioned, you know, something like at least once a year. I guess I'd be curious, kind of what's your opinion on how often should we, you know, be thinking about rolling out new changes to our prices, updating them, or just kind of keeping them the same? Yeah, there's, there isn't one magic number. I often, uh, I, I guess I agree with Patrick on this uh, component mm-hmm. where, you know, I, about once a year is, is healthy. And mm-hmm. it's, even though it's only annual, given my experience, it's more often than most companies are considering their pricing. Uh, you know, and that's, that again, goes to both pricing and packaging where you know, you're maybe not, you changing sort of your price level uh, every year, but you know, you're creating new add-ons that you can separately monetize. You're thinking about or creating new brand new products. You're thinking about localizing your pricing, about changing discounting policies and enforcement such that you, know, you can get that top line uh, revenue uh, in a more predictable way. Uh, but you know, companies are constantly improving their products. So whenever you feel like your product has changed enough to merit visiting pricing, it's probably a good time to reevaluate your your market's dynamic. You've got new competitors coming in, old competitors leaving. Competitors are introducing new features, you know, changes to market dynamics, right? So I think many companies who had their 2020 planning session uh, finalized on December 2019 had a rude awakening, right? When they came mm-hmm. in March 2020 and COVID hit, sure. right? And saying all right, well, all of our assumptions that we thought, you know, for the year are, are going to go, you know, sideways end up for, for better or worse, ended up working out really well for the, the SaaS companies generally. But I think it, you know, whenever there's a, a structural shift in your, either the offering that you provide or your market, I think are good times to reevaluate, you know, fundamentally when you're, you're thinking about trying to change pricing, you know, any pricing change, you really need to evaluate two things. 
what do we think is the difference in expected revenue and what is the difference in costs incurred? And that could be costs from actually going and doing a pricing study and, and making the changes in your subscription management system and training the sales force. But you know, what is what is the delta? You know, how is this actually going to improve profitability? And you know, do we think that there's a a reasonable return here from a from a pricing change? Mm-hmm. I guess from a from a testing perspective, I mean, do you want to just keep kind of uh, you know, let's say you press you set you set the price hundred dollars a month. That's kind of what the average is. Um, you know, you're adding kind of new features, but you know, the conversion rate is pretty good. Are you kind of just testing, you know, slight increases and seeing how kind of conversion rates or how do you kind of look at the the optimal formula? Is it just, you know, based off data and seeing how people are converting? Yeah. So I guess there's a there's a few questions uh enrolled in that one too, where it's like, what do you use in order to figure out is there a problem? Right. And so yeah. sometimes those are more qualitative, like we yeah. don't have I'm talking to several clients right now where, you know, for example, uh, customer success is unable to effectively upsell, right? So it's mm-hmm. they're they're seeing a drag on net retention because the way their pricing and packaging is structured, they really can only convince customers to buy more if they hire more employees because it's based upon seats, right, for that particular use case. And so that's not a very effective tool. You know, if you think about consultative selling or, you know, the ability of a customer success manager to really help understand the business and how can they can get more value, it doesn't really give them a lever to do that, right? Or, you know, it could be on uh, the discounting side, right? Looking at, are we, you know, discounting in a way that, first of all, do we have a discounting policy? That's sort of step one. And then step two, which is a different question, and often, uh, even if they have step one completed, are we actually enforcing a discounting policy, right? And so one of the things that you can look at is discounting percent, and then looking at what we call price bands. The price bands are ways to, you know, all things being equal across customers, looking at you know, customer size, the, the type of customer, the potential you know, sales rep, the, the the products that were sold, you know, do we see a consistent use of of discounting across the board? And if not, where are those outliers? So really helping us understand, you know, are our policies being enforced and are they are they rational? Are we trading off as I was talking to another client the other day, and you know, one of the problems is company is in scale up stage and they're really excited about getting more logos right? Which is reasonable, right? But the question is, what is the value of a new logo versus what they're willing to give up? And I don't think they've really had that conversation internally to really say, okay, yeah, it's great to have logos, but it's not worth a 75% discount to get any particular logo in the, in the door. Yeah. Okay. And, and then if we're thinking about it from, I guess, a lot, you know, a lot of SaaS companies like you probably work with are, are more product-led um, and, you know, they're, they're trying to use the product to sell versus more kind of consultative uh, selling solution, which you talked about. And, and, you know, there's a couple of ways to look at it. One way is, you know, using the free trial option, you know, many SaaS companies are offering, you know, 14 days, 30 days kind of free trials and then others have the the kind of freemium option. How do you kind of look at that um, as the overall kind of pricing and uh, yeah, when you're pricing up your, your offer? Yeah. So free trials are, free trials and freemium both rely on what economists would say software is an experience good, which mm-hmm. means my perception of the value of the product changes as I use it. You might imagine this if you go to a, a dinner, right? Where you might, mm-hmm. you know, read some Yelp reviews or you just look at a menu online, but then you actually go experience the food. You're like, oh, okay, that was that was really good or that wasn't, right? And we have a very similar uh, problem in the B2B SaaS world where 
as good as your marketing team is in, in making copy or videos or webinars or white papers, there is something to be said for people really don't have that emotional impact of what the value is going to be and how much it's going to change their lives until they actually use the product. And so mm -hmm. I'm, I'm really a big favor uh, in favor of free trials. And you know the ideal length there is probably 14 to 30 days, given the input I've seen. Um, and I really, really do not like freemium. <laughs> so okay. I, I do not think freemium is a good idea. So I my first foray into the pricing world was actually I did a my MBA internship out in Silicon Valley for a successful Silicon Valley company. Mm. And the problem on the CEO's desk, they went to market, they were selling apps through four major uh, channel partners effectively. And one of those channel partners were themselves trying to be the low cost player in the market and demanded that all their partners mm. have a freemium version of the app. So they're like, okay, we have to create a freemium version of the app for this one partner should we do it for all? And so that was kind of the question on CEO's desk when I showed up. And so among other things, that summer, I helped them work on it, a bunch of investigation into freemium and just generally found it was a, a terrible idea. Um, it's almost all arguments for freemium can be short-circuited with do a 14 to 30-day free trial instead. Um, it causes a bunch of problems internally. It's challenging to move customers from free. So one, uh, as we were talking about before, if I'm using, if I'm understanding that price can be a perception of value, uh, now I've just anchored the lowest level of price, uh, which can impact my perception of value. Also, what problem you run into with freemium is that you run into what is called the penny gap, where going from zero dollars and cents to even a penny is an infinite increase in price. So it almost requires as much activation energy as the entire go-to-market approach. And so the illusion that companies are under is that you know, these free customers will eventually convert to, to paying. And it's anyone who's worked in marketing or growth like knows how hard it is to create customers. And so this, or to acquire customers, you know, whether that's through SEO, through paid, through social. And so you have this giant pool of free users and there's this ever present view that, oh, we could just, if we spend a little bit more energy here, we could really juice the amount of people that convert to paid, but it's a mirage. It's an illusion. I mean, best in class freemium companies, they're going to convert one to 3% of those customers to paid. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about that, you know, that requires a few things. One, it's a colossal market. So you see this much more in B2C than you do in B2B because by definition, you almost need millions of potential customers in your, in your TAM. And, you know, the, uh, the other thing is that it, you know, so this this perpetual need to try to convert people over, often what this really is works on two levels. One is it, it tends to be a lot of wasted energy of people who will never convert. The more subtle thing is that those users, if they're not paying you, they're users, not customers. Those users tend to be very different in terms of where, like what they are and what they need and, and the context they're operating in, then you're paid customers. And so from a product management perspective, it can often, it, one, it adds this noisy input to your discovery process because now you're listening to a bunch of people who will never convert, who are giving you ideas that aren't necessarily valuable to the paid side. Like I was working with a company before where uh, they, you know, they made the software and you know on their paid side were you know, SMB to all the way to enterprise type customers. And everyone on their freemium side was basically 
consumers at home, like using the software for them and their family, right? And so those people were in an entirely different context and were not suited to really ever use the the, the larger uh, paid offering, uh, shall we say. Mm. So yeah, I'm trying to think about that. I mean, from my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, I guess the, the idea where mo- most of the times where you want to use freemium option is if you have a lot of, you know, investment and you're trying to capture the entire market, right? Like where you just, all you care about is, is kind of, you know, um, accelerating the, the amount of users you have using your platform and kind of that's your main metric you're, you're trying to target. Then I think it probably makes more sense versus, you know, just, just going the free trial option. Yeah. So I think going, talking to that specifically. So one of the first things I work with companies on is what is their pricing objectives? Because we could bring back the best pricing study in the world. And if everyone has a different objective, they're going to look at it like a Rorschach where they're just going to see whatever they want to see in the data. Yeah. So one part of that is optimizing for market share rarely ends up being the right objective. Um, you know, And it's usually that profit, market share follows from profitability, not vice versa. Uh, if, you know, Southwest Airlines is a, a perfect example, right? Where they're they were the low, small, upstart competitor, right? They they focused incredibly uh, tightly on serving a specific segment of the market, right? And then they've been the only profitable airline of the last you know 20, 30 years, you know. And all right. the big players, right? Ostensibly, much more market share uh, can't eke out any profitability, right? And so I think that's uh, the first thing, and then. There are a few select circumstances where freemium can work. Again, as I mentioned before, if you've got like a colossal market with you know millions of potential customers, uh, if you've got specific competitive environment. So one of the darlings of the freemium story back in the day was Evernote. Uh, Evernote is a competitor to Microsoft OneNote. So they were in a very specific competitive situation where Microsoft, the largest software company in the world, was ostensibly giving away their product for free or bundled with their Microsoft Office suite. And so Evernote really didn't have much of an option there because you know they were they were effectively already competing with with free via, via the Microsoft bundle. Um, right. You know, also potentially if you have you know, developer focused products where you know, if I need to use a product in dev or staging for six to 12 months before it ever could be used in production, it doesn't make a lot of sense there to just have a free trial where, you know, sales guys are constantly regenerating keys because they're not really using it in a production environment. But in that situation, you know, you could have a freemium version that is suited for dev or staging. But if you try to move it to production, it wouldn't have the performance characteristics that you would mm-hmm. you would require. Um, right. Or something like like Slack where, you know, if I show up to a party and there's no one there, that's the world's worst party. Uh, yeah. Slack is similar, where the value of the product actually requires a simultaneous mass adoption across your company. And so, right. for for Slack, so a product like Slack, that's actually part of the value proposition. Is everyone else is on it, and not on on it like over the period of twelve months, but on it like I need everyone there today because I can't. Like no one can use it until everyone is there, really. Um, right. Or at least my entire team is there. So there are some some very specific uh, examples, but you know those tend to be edge cases, and that's why I say most of the time you're better suited with a 14, 30 day free trial. It also makes your go to market motion much more cleaner because, or much cleaner because the 14 to 30 days creates a decision point. So it mm-hmm. makes it very clear of all of the activities that you know growth or marketing or product have to make happen in terms of email drip campaigns, customer onboarding. Uh, and then, and then the sales motion is clean because once that person says, "Oh no, our, we're we're done with our trial. We're 
we're good, right? They just go off in the distance. With freemium, that ending point is is very vague, and right, you might continue to invest more scarce resources into a customer that never converts. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. A quick note from our sponsors today, and we'll be right back. This episode is sponsored by DoFollow.io, a premium link building agency specializing in driving SEO growth for SaaS companies. Do you have great content and want to boost your organic traffic to your website? Get links on high quality websites such as MSN, HubSpot, Zendesk, Cloudways, and hundreds of others. DoFollow.io can get you guaranteed results for less than the cost of hiring an in-house SEO completely hands-off, no retainer, 100% performance-based, and cancel anytime. If you're interested, book a call now at DoFollow.io and start outranking your competitors today. Um, and then in terms of you know how you you know uh, present your pricing, I know there's kind of an objection here of uh, whether we should show our pricing on our website or not. And I know there's kind of a Two sides of that one, or there's a couple of sides, but one at least in my mind is, you know, that sets kind of a filter for the, the, the people you want to come in. So you say, okay, this is our pricing, we're transparent. And then there's also the transparency, which is like, okay, we're, we're transparent, there's no hidden cost. Everything is up here, we're presenting everything that's included. Um, and you can just make a simple decision. And then the other one is the filters. Like, okay, this is our price. If you're if you're not interested, you know, you could probably, we shouldn't probably be having a conversation. Um, at, what, 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 at what stages or times uh, should you be showing the prices and when shouldn't you be? Yes, this is a great question. So data that I've seen shows that about 50% of SaaS packages have public pricing and packaging. So you're, you know, so you're in good company if you want to show public pricing and packaging. You know, there's a there's a lot of sort of elements and decisions. I think there's there's bad and good reasons for for not uh for doing one or the other. So you know, if you're say bad reasons, like if you're afraid your pricing is too high or too low, or competitors will get easy access to your pricing information, I think those are sort of bad reasons um, to not show pricing and packaging. Usually, there's kind of three models that I think about. So there's full public pricing and packaging, and that's about 50% of SaaS companies have that. There's no public pricing or packaging, and then there's a hybrid, where like I have a public display of my packages, but no price levels. And so each of those is sort of best for particular circumstances. So like the first one, we have full public, everything is you've got standardized packaging. Maybe you've got a horizontal product with a humongous market and competition, right? I think competitive set is an important element to consider here, right? Where, you know, your competition, if they've all got transparent pricing, it's going to be very difficult for you. It's going to look like you're hiding something. Um, It's going to make it, uh, you know, people are probably going to drop you off early in consideration list because everyone else has, you know, so it potentially to a point where, you know, sales guys aren't even going to be able to get involved because they've already discounted, they've already moved you from consideration set. Um, you know, or, and you see this a lot with like high volume and velocity or what is called product led growth models. So that's usually why you choose, you know, public pricing and packaging. If you're doing no public pricing or packaging, usually that's best if you've got an enterprise sales motion, if you've got you know complex packaging that requires a salesperson to walk through, I was working with a client before, and they had grown their legacy business over you know a decade, and they had like a forty-five page price list. Well, you know, <laughs> even if they published out of their website, good luck to any customer yeah. who wants to, and, and even to the point where they were having trouble because their their sales folks could barely even like it was so complex they could barely even quote, mm-hmm. and so you needed like these specialists to help customers quote. Or so, so those type of situations, or you know, if there's high difference in willingness to pay between segments or, or a small addressable market, like if you've got if you're only selling to the Fortune 10 or the Fortune 50, 
really your need to show public pricing and packaging is is, is minimal. Um, and then the then there's the hybrid of, of public display of packages, but no price levels. Again, if you've got this is good if you've got you know companies that have good uh, tiers, like a good, better, best packaging that's really easy for customers to sort of understand the the value, right? Because the pack, good packaging can act as supporting your value communication message. Like, course, hey, yeah. we serve we serve these groups of people and here's what they find valuable, right? That can, that's, that's a good reason to show your packages, but maybe you don't show price levels because you have a high difference of willingness to pay between segments or again, a small addressable market. So those are some of the things to think about. Just a quick kind of follow-up question on that. Is there a, you know, dollar pricing amount that kind of sets the, 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 the decision for whether you should price, uh, show your price on the web on your website or not? Meaning if I'm a thousand dollar a month product or $10,000 a month, um, you know, I don't know if you know showing that is kind of you know uh, kind of uh, more you know negative than it is positive versus you know ten dollars a month is kind of easier um, you know kind of value to show and people make a decision just based off that. Um, what, what's your kind of thoughts on that? Yeah, there's there's all sorts of uh, variables and then the three models I, I laid out right are are three sort of archetypes, but there's obviously many different shades of gray in between. And so, for example, what you might see uh, where people have public pricing and packaging is they'll say something like starting at 199, right? Or starting at right. 399, right? Well, so they have sort of a starting point, but maybe, you know, they're they're hiding some of the complexity of things scales, right? Or obviously if they're if you have a price metric, we haven't gotten into price metrics too much, but price metric is the unit of value you charge customers for. You know, most uh for better or worse, most companies these days still charge based upon seats, right? So mm-hmm. I might say it's ten dollars a seat, but you're coming in, you're trying to buy you know, 5,000 seats, right? So, so your net price is still going to be, you know, higher, but yeah, we're, we're, we're still sort of showing the, the low end price. Um, the other way I think about it is in terms of the, your customer acquisition cost, right? If you've got a, a low lifetime and it's relationship to lifetime value, if you've got a relatively low lifetime value, which you may have in more of a product like growth volume velocity type model, mm-hmm. I think you might've mentioned this before where we are, we can use public pricing as a way, as a, as a qualification mechanism upfront, so that our, you know, our sales folks aren't spending time with you know people who are like, oh, ten dollars a month—that's too rich for my blood. Um, but also, they're not spending all that time on the beginning of every sales call talking about pricing. It's like, hey, pricing's there and transparent, right? So it it serves as a qualification mechanism, but also uh, lowers, you know, customer acquisition costs because less time, you know, each sales rep has to spend, you know, on the phone discussing what is, you know, obviously just publicly transparent, uh, the better. So there's a couple of elements there. Um, there's not necessarily one sort of core, you know, cutoff. I think generally the way I think about it, right, in terms of, Product-led growth or volume velocity model versus like a account-based marketing model. Yeah, because um, yeah. you know, we tend to see the public pricing and packaging more in the in the former. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that breakpoint, and again, some people may may dither on the exact number, but as a as a general guideline, I think about that as like a twenty five thousand dollars or less for like the former versus you know above. And so, if that helps, sort of think about you know potential cutoff point. Um, that's one way to sort of think about it. Yeah, it make, makes perfect sense. Um, last question, Dan, before we get into kind of the personal rapid fire questions, uh, which is the fun, the other fun part of the show. Um, at what point do you think, you know, SaaS companies should be bringing in or talking to, you know, dedicated pricing experts, um, with their product marketing team? I mean, you know, obviously, you know, guys like yourself, at what point do you generally come in and, you know, like we need somebody to talk to here to, to make a decision and, and work with? Yeah. So often below 
you know, 10 million uh, in ARR, it's not a consideration. And mm-hmm. I think I saw numbers from OpenView that only about 50% of pre-IPO companies with 100 million have a dedicated pricing person or team. So north yeah. of about 200 million is usually where you see the need to bring in a full-time pricing person. Right. Um, so you, at that point, you've got, you know, probably 1,500 you know, 2000 employees, right? And so now you've got enough of a product portfolio, right? Where there's enough for a full-time uh, person. And so like, right. much like hiring any role, you know, start with the need. Is there a need for someone with full-time ownership and accountability? Um, or, you know, can we have this be part of someone's job? Usually I recommend, you know, pricing is owned by product marketing. Uh, we can go into that if you want, but uh, oftentimes you can get by with, you know, it's a a portion of one person's job for a while until you need to bring in a sort of a full-time uh, pricing and, and packaging person. Um, and generally I recommend, you know, make sure somebody is in charge of pricing. Uh, this is, <laughs> this is too often the case where, you know, the, the founders, you know, they put together the initial pricing and packaging, maybe s- spend six to eight hours doing that. But at some point, you know, they get very busy and then this, there's sort of this growth le- lever that is just, it's not even discussed because no one's really clear where the ownership is. Um, so it could, it can be a good idea to make this not the CEO sooner than might be comfortable. You know, it's so vital that it can get neglected on a CEO's to-do list, uh, but also, you know, make sure that your CEO is involved, uh, that they're participating in any discussions. You know, the last thing you want is sort of the, Oh, I, I shoot from the gut veto after they've not been involved in any of the, the real substantive discussions. Um, you know, and so normally how I recommend people go about this is like having some sort of pricing committee or pricing council with a, with a designated leader, right. That owns the process, you know, that has a, as you discussed before, has a sort of regular cadence for how often do we do bring these up, right. And can handle sort of ad hoc uh, situations, right. But pricing is one of these things that has so many different stakeholders. It's so much, energy and passion uh, associated with the, you know, if you don't have someone who, who owns it, right, and can really drive it, everyone sort of will otherwise just touch it. And then like everyone just barks and, and they're like, all right, well, I'm not touching that. Again. So it's, I think it's important to have an owner. Someone who actually takes the decision and makes the, actually implements the change and sees it out. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Cool. Um, okay. That, that, that was good then. I appreciate that. Um, so kind of moving to the the kind of last phase of the the episode, which we talk about, which is the rapid fire questions. Um, you ready for that? Sure. Let's do yeah. it. All right. Um, so what's one activity, Dan, that you enjoy outside of work that you feel gets you into flow state? Over the last few years, I've gotten really into Vipassana meditation. So that nice. really helps keep me grounded. And I feel like it's you know, flossing for your brain. So really helps get rid of all the noise, the, uh, whatever else is going on in the day helps recenter me. Uh, you know, the, we're th- through no end of problems, but I mean, this is the reason I named my company product tranquility is, you know, my goal is to help bring you know, some peace of mind to other people, uh, you know, out there in the tech space doing the work, but also as a reminder to myself to maintain my own tranquility. So it helps, helps yeah. with that. And then, uh, you know, I, I love reading, you know, when I'm not reading pricing books, I, I'm in the middle of rereading the, the wheel of time series for the, I don't know, 20th time. Uh, so that tends to get me into mm-hmm. a good flip state as well. Nice. Yeah, we're on the same page there. You know, we're at, we're at uh, we create Horizon, right? So we're always in Zen when we're making any kind of investment decision. So yeah, you got to keep your mind sharp. Um, what's, what's one piece of advice you wish you had known and you would tell your, maybe say 25-year-old self, if you can go back in time? Start learning about pricing. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Be a lot, be a lot, a lot ahead of the curve if you did it yeah, back in 25. Exactly. Yeah. 
Makes sense. Um, what are the biggest challenges you're currently facing in order to continue to grow um, your firm today? Meaning, what's is anything keeping you up at night these days? Yeah, so I would say the pricing world is a pretty small world. Uh, I think I've met or ta- at least talked to pretty much everyone who does this for a living. And so finding other people I can bring in for what I call swing capacity. So when I get too busy or, or need help on specific projects, that's been surprisingly difficult. So anybody out there who's a pricing expert or financial analyst or data analyst or a market researcher, uh, happy to talk to you. So reach out, let me know. Uh, and yeah, hopefully we can find a way to work together. Yeah, that's, that's tough. To, it's, tough it's tough market right there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Dan, you mentioned one book earlier that you you know, you know you mentioned as the, the the key book that everybody must read. Is there any other uh, maybe best resources, maybe books, maybe people, mentors, or even people you follow in the space who you'd say have been the most instrumental to your success over these last few years? Yeah, I mentioned uh, The Strategy and Tactics of Pricing by a guy named Tom Nagel. I think it's in like its sixth or seventh edition. It's just, abs- it's it's dense, mm-hmm. but it's absolutely fun foundational to all the work that I do. Uh, he you know, he had founded the uh, Strategic Pricing Group, uh, which then got uh, snapped up by Monitor, which is now uh, owned by Deloitte. Uh, and so, you know, he just has a ton of experience in terms of how to think about pricing across a bunch of different industries. Uh, another book in the pricing space that I usually recommend to people is a book called Monetizing Innovation. Um, it's by the folks at the Simon Kutcher Partners. They're sort of the McKinsey of pricing. Um, very approachable, uh, very uh, centered on the technology industry, uh, very uh, easy for the beginner to sort of wrap their heads around. Uh, some other other books can either be too dense or all of a sudden you're looking at calculus formulas. This is totally uh, removed of any formulas, but more so helping people really understand uh, different elements. And then, uh, yeah, and then in terms of running my own consulting practice, uh, there's a gentleman named David A. Fields who's just been absolutely helpful. Uh, I know what I know in the domain, uh, the work domain, but you know, when you go off on your own and run your own practice, uh, there's, a, there's a bunch of other aspects of running a practice, uh, everything from sales and business development and how to market yourself and, uh, you know, dealing with procurement contracts and everything else. You're like, oh, wait, there's all these other things I need to figure out how to do too. So that's been incredibly helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Dan, what does uh, success mean to you today? Whether that's personally, business, financial, life, um, there's no no right answer. How do you define it? Yeah, this is a good question because I often think about, as I've gone off on this journey, you know, what was sort of my core motivations and Fundamentally, it's to work on interesting projects with interesting people and help create value in the world. And, you know, I want to be able to have enough flexibility to be location independent, flexible with you know who I get to work with and what I get to work on. Uh, and a big sort of value for me is I get to continue to learn and grow. Uh, and it's it's an interesting thing to say that because oftentimes growth, we say like, oh, yeah, I'd be able to grow is great. Uh, and then we get uh, another effing growth opportunity. It's my my favorite new phrase, <laughs> AFGO, because growth is often uh, the thing we think we want. And then when we have that growth opportunity, it ends up being hard. But I, I really do enjoy <laughs> just uh, learning, continuing to refine my knowledge and how the world works. Yeah. And yeah. you're also based in Austin, Texas. You're in a great place. So it seems like you're, you're doing what you want to do in the right place. So um, <laughs> Dan, where, where can, uh, you know, other than seeing you in, in, in Austin, where can founders get in touch with you? Learn more about you uh, if they want to, you know, chat about their pricing package as well. 
Yeah, so I blog regularly on my website trying to demystify the world of pricing at producttranquility.com. So check out my blog there. And uh, happy to connect with folks on LinkedIn. I'm Dan Balkowski on LinkedIn. Just let me know you heard me on the podcast so I could separate it from the rest of the LinkedIn spam. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dan. Appreciate you joining on today. Thank you, Akil. Hopefully it was useful for your users. It was, it was. Thank you so much. Thank you all for watching this episode and joining SaaS District today. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and hit the bell for future episodes where we interview top leaders in the SaaS industry. If you're a SaaS company looking to grow and unlock the true value of your business, get in touch with us at Horizon Capital and myself or one of our consultants will provide a free assessment to help you get there and hit your goals. If you have any feedback or suggestions for this podcast, please comment down below and help us improve our content for you all. Thanks again and see you on the next one.